0: God, I thank you for the sun this morning. I thank you for the reminder, God, that without you, we are nothing. God, I thank you for your name. I thank you for how great you are, God. As we take this this offering, Lord, I pray that this would just come out of the, the, the overfill of our hearts, God. And that it would not be something that we have to do, God, but it would be something that we are so joyful to do, God. God, I pray for Tom as he comes and gives the message this morning. God, I pray that you would just speak through him, God. And I thank you for everything you're doing in our lives, Lord, and I I praise and thank you in advance for what you're going to do. In your heavenly name, amen. You may be seated. Through the darkness, your loving kindness, tore through the upon me. you have broken every shame there's salvation in your name Jesus Christ my living Lord. and you could stand for this last verse the morning let's seal the promise your very God breathe. Out of the silence the roar In every chain, there's salvation in your name.
1: Good morning. Thank you for coming. I recognize the seriousness of this opportunity. James said, be not many teachers, for you bear a greater responsibility. I recognize that. I feel a little bit like the... Apostle Paul, who wrote when he went to the church at Corinth, what became the church at Corinth. And he wrote later, and he said, when I came to you, I did not come to you in the wisdom of men. Do you know what he meant by that? In that day, there were 12 volumes of oratory. Those 12 volumes covered every conceivable subject and every conceivable problem that a speaker could encounter and how to manage that encounter and how to be persuasive. And Paul said, when I came to you, I didn't come like that. I didn't come with the wisdom of men, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith may not rest upon man, but upon God. Let's have a word of prayer before we begin. Father, I come before you this morning in the name of Jesus Christ, your Son. And I recognize my frailty and my need of you. And I ask that you would grant me your Holy Spirit and supernatural ability and supernatural authority to proclaim your word, that indeed we might believe upon God and that man. Use your word this morning to challenge us, to convict us, to correct us, to conform us to the very image of your beloved Son. May our lives change as a result of our time this morning. We will give you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all of the glory and praise for what you accomplish by your Spirit in our midst today. Amen. Uh, Turn to Numbers chapter 21. But before we examine Numbers 21, you need a little bit of context. Someone brighter than I once said that a text without a context is a pretext. So I want to give just a little bit of pretext, not pretext, a little bit of context of Numbers 21 before we look at it. Numbers is written by Moses. It's the fourth of five books. That he wrote. It covers approximately 40 years of time from Mount Sinai to the River Jordan, ready to go into the Promised Land. And in this book, there are numerous occasions for God to display his great power, to display his holiness to show his love for his chosen people. And there are plenty of descriptions of when they stuck the hand up in his face. And in somewhat of the vernacular of our day, they thumbed their nose at him. So there's that combination in the book. And throughout the book, we see God working in mysterious and mighty ways among his people progressing along to fulfill the covenant that he made with Abraham. God didn't forget. At times it may have looked like he did, but he didn't forget. And he was progressively working towards the fulfillment of that promise that he made to Abraham. Now in the immediate context before chapter 21 is chapter 20. And in that chapter, there are a number of real significant highlights that occur. The children of Israel have progressed to Kadesh Barnea, which is just on the southern edge of what would be the promised land. They've chosen 12 spies to go in and check out the land to see if it really is as good as God said it would be. (laughs) We don't do that, do we? But the spies went. They came back with a fantastic report carrying a clump of grapes that required a pool between several men to carry it. And yet in spite of that, 10 of the 12 spies said, oh, we can't go in there. Oh, yeah, that's a wonderful land, but there are giants in there. And they've got walled cities. Can't go in there. God brought judgment upon them and said, Of you 12 spies, there's only two of them that are going to see the promised land. That's Joshua and Caleb. The rest of you and all of your age from 20 on up, you're going to die in the wilderness. You will never see the land. Your children, whom you said you wanted to protect by not going in there, they will go in. They will see the promised land. We also see an occasion in chapter 20 when they're out of water they come and complain to Moses, we need water. We don't have any water. Now this is not the first time that that had happened. (laughs) Those of you who know your Old Testament and know the journey from Egypt towards the Promised Land, this wasn't the first time Moses had previously encountered this issue, came to the Lord, and the Lord said, go to the rock, strike the rock, you'll get water this time when the people came to Moses and he went to God and said, what do we do? We need water. He said, go to the rock, but speak to the rock. Don't hit the rock. Speak to the rock. And we all know what Moses did, don't we? He went to the rock and unfortunately, because Moses was really a godly man. But can you imagine dealing with the children of Israel (laughs) as he had to deal with them? Wouldn't you be frustrated once or twice along the way? And in a moment of frustration, he grabbed that rod and he struck the, 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 he grabbed his rod and struck the rock not once, but twice. God in his mercy provided abundant water. As a result, God said to Moses and Aaron, just for that, you're not going to see the promised land either. You didn't trust me. But the worst part of it was, it says, you hindered my holiness. Hmm. You hindered my holiness by what you did. Somehow, God would have displayed his holiness to his children had he just merely spoken to the rock. But he didn't. He hindered their holiness. So now we see the children of Israel What do we do now? We're not going to go into the promised land now. So it says they moved from Kadesh Barnea to Mount Hor. Mount Hor was on the western border of Edom, Esau's lineage. They asked for permission to go through Edom, and the king of Edom said, absolutely not. And in fact, he marshaled all of his troops right out to the border and said, no way are you coming through my land. So that meant they had to go around Edom. Edom was a country that stretched from basically the southern edge of the Dead Sea to almost the Gulf of Aqaba. That long. So they had to go around Edom. Towards the promised land. That brings us to 21. 21, we start and we read this. And when King Arad the Canaanite, which dwelt in the south, heard that Israel came by the way of the spies, then he fought against Israel and took some of them prisoners. And Israel vowed a vow unto the Lord and said, If thou wilt indeed deliver this people into my hand, then I will utterly destroy their cities. And the Lord hearkened to the voice of Israel and delivered up the Canaanites, and they utterly destroyed them and their cities. And he called the name of the place Hormah or destruction. We'll stop right there for the moment. This is the first of two narratives in this first part of Um, Numbers 21. Here we see a high spot. The children of Israel encounter the Canaanites who came against them unprovoked. They're just kind of moving along their way. And the king of the city of Arad and the Canaanites said, these people look too much like they're going to follow that route that the spies followed and we don't want them coming anywhere near our land. So they came out in force and attacked the Israelites, took some of them captive. The people came to Moses and said, we're going to pray, and they sought the Lord, and they said, God, if you will enable us to overcome these people, we will devote all of their cities to destruction. God said, okay. Go to it. They went to it, and they destroyed them. A real high point. They came to God in the midst of their trial and difficulty and God answered, gave them deliverance over their enemy. But then we come to verse number 4. Verse number 4 says this, And they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of Red Sea to compass the land of Edom. And the soul of the people was much discouraged because of the way. Now, the Red Sea is actually south of the Gulf of Aqaba, if you know your geography, and I don't pretend to be a great person of geography, but I did look it up. <laughs> I wanted to see, where is this? So there was a route that traveled through the lands it went down towards the Red Sea, even though the Gulf of Aqaba was first. So they're heading in that direction. That is a very barren land, sandy, Desert, God forsaken, we would describe it, worthless land. Would you get discouraged going through that kind of a circumstance in life? I suppose I might. But they came to that land and they became discouraged. Now, I don't pretend to be a Hebrew scholar. I don't even, well, I shouldn't say I don't know a Hebrew. I do know a Hebrew, right, Carl? But I do have some good resources. And three of the books that I use often in my studies and research, one of them is the New International Dictionary of Theology and Exegesis. Long title, great book. Another one I use is commonly called BDB, which is Brown Driver Briggs, Hebrew lexicon. Another one I use, you probably are familiar with, more so than the first two, might be a Strong's Concordance. So I looked up some of these words. I wanted to understand what it was going on with the children of Israel that is described here, they became discouraged. It says the soul of Israel became discouraged. Discouraged. What does it mean by soul? Oftentimes when we think about soul, we're we're talking about that, that little part of us that's down inside of us that kind of makes us uniquely us. It's my soul. That's not what it means here. What it is describing here is the totality of their being, their minds, their emotions, their will, their physicality, everything about them was discouraged. They were in despair over their circumstances because of the way. Because of the route they had to follow in order to progress towards the promised land, and they also had to follow the cloudy pillar. Remember, that's what God gave them. Follow that cloudy pillar. He was leading them So they had to go around, and this is where God sent them. And in the midst, again, they cry to Moses, we don't have any water. Let's read it. And the people spake against God, verse number 5, and against Moses, Wherefore have ye brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no bread, neither is there any water, and our soul loatheth this light bread. And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and much people of Israel died. Therefore, the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for you have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray unto the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. And Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said unto Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And it shall come to pass that everyone that is bitten, when he looks upon it, shall live. And Moses made a serpent of brass and put it on a pole. And it came to pass that if a serpent had bitten any man, when he beheld the serpent of brass, he lived. So the people come to Moses and they say, Moses, we don't have any water. We don't have any food. We don't have any bread. And besides this light stuff, that we've been eating every day since we came into this land, this light stuff is worthless. Can't you do something? Did you just bring us out here to die? Moses went to God and said, God, what do I do? These serpents are biting the people. They're dying as a result of it. What shall I do? Well, God had sent those serpents as a judgment against them, a punishment for their rebellion against him, because when it says they spake against God and against Moses, it isn't your little occasion where they said, you know what, I, I, I got a little different idea. You know, what, did you ever consider this, Moses? Did you ever consider that maybe we might go this way? No, 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 no. This was vitriol. This was hostility. This was mockery. This was shaking the fist in the face of Moses and God. You brought us out here to die. That kind of an attitude. Whole different picture, isn't it? Confronting the holy God who had displayed himself so mightily up to this point and having the chutzpah to say, did you bring us out here to die? In a hostile, aggressive manner. Not only Moses, but God. God sent the fiery serpents. Now, I did do a little research into this fiery serpent, and this particular area, geographically, does have, it's known for having a lot of red serpents, got red marks on them. Now, whether it's the same ones as was back when God sent them, don't know. But these were fiery serpents in some fashion. Either they were red in color and kind of a fiery appearance to them, or their bite was fiery, or the death that resulted because of the bite from these snakes was a fiery kind of death. Fiery serpents bringing death. So God said to Moses, here's what you do. I want you to make a serpent of brass, a likeness of that serpent. Make it out of copper and brass. There was copper in that area. So they made, he made and fashioned a, a serpent that looked like the ones that were biting the Israelites. And he said, I want you to put it on a pole. The pole was like a standard, like when you'd see a a rallying cry for, for uh, your troops, like a military standard. Where people would say, "Look for the standard," that that's where we'll be. Put it up, and everybody who looks to the serpent will be healed. Now there again, what does it mean to look? I have a mentor by the name of Dr. Ron Mansdorfer. He has a little hobby horse that he runs every now and then. He said, you know, people see, but they don't look. I said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, for example, now I know I'm going to date you, date myself when I ask you this question, but on which, side fo- on, on which side of a coin telephone is the return? Is it on the right side or is it on the left side? Somebody says right. We need to look, not just see, look. And what God was saying to the children of Israel was look. Don't just passing glance by, oh yeah, there, there's this there's this on the brass on the pole down there, okay. No. You look to it. A look of intensity, a look with purpose a look designed to achieve and experience what it was that God promised. God promised if you look, you'll be healed. So the children of Israel, those bitten by the snake and suffering, it says every one of them who was bitten, when they looked, they lived. that's the story why did God bring these events into the children of Israel's experiences and why did he record them for their posterity he wanted the children of Israel to learn that you live by faith you live by faith Everything that the children of Israel encountered in the book of Numbers, the journey around and on to the walking in and even the possession of the land, the removal of the enemies and the occupants that were there, was all done by faith. They were outnumbered. We're not going to get into the capturing of the land, but they were outnumbered by mighty forces. How did they gain those victories? By faith, trusting God. And God wanted the children of Israel to realize that everything in life that was important and necessary for them, even their spiritual experiences and their lives, would be obtained from God by faith. Not by Moses, not by their own gumption, not by their own works, not by something that they would somehow manufacture within themselves. By faith from God and God alone. We see an interesting thing about this serpent of brass, and I can see it in a few of your eyes. Isn't there some other place that we encounter this serpent on a brass this brass serpent on a pole or something? Isn't there some other place where that appears? Yes, there is. It appears in John chapter 3. And in a few weeks, I will have the privilege of studying with you the doctrine of soteriology. I hope that title doesn't put you off. (laughs) But it's the study of salvation. We're going to look at John chapter 3. But there's a part of John chapter 3 that records the Lord Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus in verses 14 and 15, where he's explaining to Nicodemus what it means to be born again. And he said, even as Moses lifted up the serpent of brass in the wilderness even so must the Son of God be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. The two. The Old Testament, the New Testament, Jesus showing how that pictured him and certain aspects about him. I did some research on this. I was curious to see, well, what is there about this serpent of brass that Jesus wants us to see that is somehow fulfilled in him being lifted up? There are some contrasts, some differences, as you would expect. One was for physical healing, another one is for spiritual healing. There are some comparisons where they're similar, alike. I came up with 11. 11. 11 different features and characteristics common between the serpent of brass in the wilderness and Jesus saying, As that serpent was lifted up, so will I be lifted up. Well, I'm not going to cover all 11, Mark. <laughs> I'm not going to do that. But there's going to be a few of them that are important and critical for us to realize, fundamental ones that I want us to see. Because what was true back then in Numbers 21 is true today. Everything that was true then is true now. God wants you and me to learn how to walk by faith. Our journey is filled with impediments, obstacles, difficulties, hardships, victories. Happy times, wonderful things. And in the midst of all of that life and the events of life, God wants us to walk by faith, not by sight. So what, is it, what are the things that I, I would like you to see? First of all, Jesus said, if I be lifted up. There's three ways Jesus was lifted up in his lifetime on earth. He was lifted up on the cross. Then he was lifted up from the grave. And then he was lifted up from the earth in his ascension back to the glorious presence with his Father. Jesus said, If I be lifted up, all who believe in me will obtain eternal life. It's exclusive. The serpent of brass was it. And can't you just kind of imagine some of the children of Israel who had demonstrated themselves to be rather rebellious to say, what do you mean? Look at a serpent of brass on there and I'm I'm somehow going to be healed from this? I mean, my milk poultice didn't work. My salves did not work. Um, Having somebody encourage me didn't work. I tried to excise it. I tried to cut where the bite was and and try and bleed out the poison. That didn't work. You mean looking at a... Yes. Look at the serpent of brass. You'll be healed. Exclusive. Nothing else would work. Nothing else did work. They died. But everyone who looked at the serpent of brass was healed. The exclusivity of Christ. Oh, we dare not be ashamed of that fact. I think sometimes we are. In our misguided attempts to win the world, we want to have a Jesus who is appealing. And so we come up with all kinds of cogitations on a Jesus that might be somehow appealing to others. Oh, Jesus is exclusive. There is no other one. There is no other way. It's Jesus and Jesus alone, and we dare not be ashamed of that fact, but rather be grateful that God in his grace and his mercy has opened my eyes to see that. Those songs, weren't they terrific? Oh, there's only one. That's Jesus. So it's occlusive. A third way that there's a simulator is by faith. It was by faith. They had to believe God's promise that when they looked at that serpent of brass on the pole that they would be healed. Element of faith. There's the element of repentance. They had to turn from every other option. They had to lay aside the salves and the cutting themselves to bleed it open. They had to lay aside the milk poultice and all of the other kinds of things that they may have tried to heal themselves of the wounds from the serpent. They had to turn from all of those things and <laughs> look to the serpent of brass on the pole. Lift it up. Exclusive faith, repentance, And everyone. Jesus said, everyone who believes me will receive eternal life. God promised the children of Israel, everyone who looks to the serpent of brass will be healed. And we read the last part of verse number 9. It says, and everyone who looked was healed. And everyone who looks to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior will be saved. Well, what can the Holy Spirit do with these truths in our lives today? How can He apply them to you and to me? Because the truths that we've seen do have application in our day just as they did back then. And the truths of God are eternal, they're eternal truth, they don't have a, an era. Well, I suspect that there are many of you here who, like me, would confess and strongly be able to state and declare, I'm a child of God. I belong to him. He is mine. I am his. I know that. The Spirit of God has communicated to me that I am, in fact, a child of God. And by the way, just as a little parenthesis right there, Martin Lloyd-Jones says that is one of the most missing ingredients in the lives of believers today is the Spirit of God confirming to your spirit that you are a child of God. I remember the day when God did that for me. I was not a little child. I was a grown man with problems. And I read about that from one of Jones's books, and I stopped right there and I lay the book down on my lap. I said, God, I want that. I've never had that. I believe I am a child of God. I, I, don't, I don't doubt that. I believe. I'm trusting you. But I've never had your spirit of God talk to my spirit and confirm to me that I am a child of God. And if you question me, that's in Romans 8. One of the ministries of the Spirit of God is to convince us, confirm to us that we are in fact children of God. I highly recommend it. So many of you here are believers. So what will this do for you? Well, maybe it will cause you to re-examine yourself. Whether or not you are in the faith. Paul encourages believers in his letters, examine yourselves. Examine yourself. Don't just take it automatically for granted. I did that when I was 9 or 10 or 15 or whenever it was you, you did. Examine yourself. Make sure of the fact that you belong to him. And then rejoice that you are one of his. I also am a believer that among an audience of this size there are some of you here who are not believers. You think you are. You may have even been raised in a Christian home. You've attended church all your life that you can remember. You can quote John 3.16 and you can lay out all kinds of signs that might convince the average person that you are, in fact, a child of God? I just read this morning a very startling statement from my friend, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. And it will help you determine whether or not you are, in fact, a child of God or not. He said, if you are not desiring to live a holy life, what right do you have to claim that you are a child of God? Ooh. Wow. That's kind of bold, isn't it? But yet that's what a child of God does. A child of God desires to live a holy life and to seek after God and to conform their life to Christ. So there are some of you here today who are not believers. Believers. To you, I would say this. Hear the word of God. When God created mankind, in Genesis, recorded in Genesis chapter 1, Adam and Eve were holy. They lived holy lives. They lived righteous lives. How long? I don't know. It doesn't matter how long they lived a holy life. They lived a holy life. Until that fateful day recorded in Genesis chapter 3 when they turned their back upon God and chose to follow the enticements and allurements of the devil and they sinned. They knew immediately they had sinned. There was a change that happened in their lives. They looked at each other differently. They behaved differently. What once appealed to them no longer appealed to them and they ran and hid from God when once they would fellowship with God. They ran and hid and they tried to cover themselves up as somehow that would make amends. God came to them, made the promise. We read in Genesis 3:15 about the man who would come and crush the head of the serpent. That's Jesus. That's Jesus. He's the one who when he was lifted up on the cross crushed the head of the serpent. Aren't you happy that he did? Hear God's word. When Adam and Eve sinned, a separation occurred, a chasm between God and man. They ran and hid. They stood before God condemned and helpless to fix it under the condemnation of God, helpless to fix it. God said, I'll step in. I'll intervene and I'll make a way. His way was through the gift of his son. The Lord Jesus, who set aside his form with God and took the form of a servant and became incarnate in human flesh, by the supernatural, mysterious conception in the Virgin Mary by the Holy Spirit. He lived a holy life. He lived everything in his life that God demanded and required of him. Full, complete obedience. And God said, I will lay on him the sin, people like you and me. And he did that on the cross. When Jesus died on the cross, he didn't die for his sin. There wasn't anything wrong that he did. It was because he was offering himself as a sacrifice on behalf of sinners like you and me. The exclusive answer to your separation from God. He rose again, victorious over sin and death, completely destroying the devil. The life that Jesus lived, we could not live. The life that he lived, God commands us to live. The death that he died, we could not die, but deserve to. The penalty that he paid was not his, but the penalty that I deserve to pay and that you deserve to pay. So I ask you, do you really know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? Has there been the experience in your life when the Spirit of God came to you and gave you a new birth from above? something that you did not manufacture, something that God did by himself out of his grace and out of his mercy and his love for you, I pray that today the Spirit of God will come to you, give you that new life, that new life from above, That new life that you need to bridge the gap, to reconcile you back to God. He asks you to believe Jesus exclusively. Trust Him. And trust the sacrifice that He made on the cross was made for you. And trust Him that he will give to you eternal life. That's what he promised. I pray that the Spirit of God will come to you today, those of you here who do not know Christ, that today the Spirit of God will give you that new birth from above, change you, give you new desires, new interests, repenting of all of your past, repenting of your self-deceit, repenting of all of the sin that has consumed and dominated your life, turning from that in faith to trust the sacrifice that God provided for you, the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that he'll come to you today and bring that new birth into your life. I'm going to close in prayer and when I'm done with my prayer we'll be dismissed. I'll remain down here in front and if there's someone here who would like to come and speak to me about these issues maybe, be the, maybe I'd be the first one that you'd say, hey, I experienced that today. Christ gave me that new birth by his spirit. I'd be more than happy to share that with you. So I'll remain down here a few minutes. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for your great grace and your great mercy, your love to love people like us and to love someone like me. Sometimes so belligerent, sometimes so selfish, sometimes so proud and arrogant, that you loved me. Thank you. And Father, I would pray that there would be someone and maybe others in our audience today to whom you will give this new life to change them completely, to bring them into the family of God. In Jesus' name, I ask these things, Father amen
0: jesus